You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We begin with a News Hour exclusive and the attempts to deal with the deteriorating situation on the downtown east side. The complex social challenges have only worsened during the pandemic, and many agree the current approach just isn't working. Now, as Richard Zussman reports, BC's premier designate has a new plan for the area. For decades, money has been funneling in to try to support those in the downtown east side. Money for social services, for police, for courts, for housing, coming from all levels of government. Now, BC's new premier is calling on a change in approach. I've not seen it look worse, uh, and I'm not seeing a worse situation for people than right now. Uh, so I think that what we're going to need to do as a province is bottom line what's happening down there. It's well beyond what the city can handle on its own. By bottom line, David Eby means the province will take over coordination of service delivery. First step will be to put in an immediate encampment plan to remove those tents on East Hastings. I don't support encampments. I don't think they're a solution to uh, homelessness. Uh, I don't think they're safe. Uh, for the people who live in them. I've seen too many fires, too many injuries, and people have died. Next, there will be a medium and long-term plan coordinating specific resources, including a more effective way to track the money being spent and tracking the outcomes. People who pass through uh, the neighborhood or even tourists who come through, the obvious metric will be is, is can, can we see an improvement in the neighborhood? Can we see that it's getting healthier? And that'll be the big uh, indicator for us. EB's plan would not include telling police, service providers and the courts how to do their job. And it's already receiving the support of the Vancouver Police Department. Somebody, probably from government, probably at the provincial level, needs to be in charge of this place and say, this is how we're going to coordinate all these disparate silos. There is also support from City Hall, where City Councilor Pete Fry says this kind of coordination has long been needed. I've certainly seen it uh, get worse and get from worse to worse. So I think that we need a, a new approach for sure. This is the support EB needs to address downtown east side concerns and to clear a hurdle. So far, no politician has been able to clear. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, this is a pretty big gamble, a big political risk mm -hmm. to be taking early on for David EB. Indeed, there's a considerable downside to this. If the government is taking 100% of control, 100% of responsibility, they're also going to get 100% of the blame if this doesn't work and if the streets continue to have those scenes we just showed you there. But there's a potential upside here as well, Sophie. And David Eby's obviously done his research on this. And if he can show progress in, on what's happened in the downtown east side over the next couple of years, that puts him in a very good position to put himself in front of the voters a couple of years from now on an issue that has bedeviled past governments. Mm -hmm. Clearly something needs to be done, Keith. What could this move look like in terms of structure? How could it possibly work? Yeah, David Eby has not supplied many details on that. I have talked to some senior people in government, though, and they're musing perhaps the creation of a new government agency uh, in charge of this. Unlikely to see a ministry, just a standalone ministry, in charge of something like this. I don't think a lot of cabinet ministers would be begging for the responsibility to oversee this thing, but I think an external agency headed over by some prof uh, trained professionals uh, to basically clean up the downtown east side and accomplish what really has deteriorated over the years and not gotten any better whatsoever. All right, thanks for that, Keith. We'll see 
what happens next. Keith Baldry in Victoria. An alert tonight for anyone who may have bought a certain acetaminophen product at the Shoppers Drug Mart on Canby Road in Richmond between November 2nd and 6th. The store is advising the public of a labeling area on acetaminophen 50 milligram 5 milliliter solution for children, which was sold in a 100 milliliter amber bottle at the pharmacy counter. Anyone who has the affected product is asked to stop using it and return it to the pharmacy for replacement. Now to that explosive report on social spending, which we first told you about earlier in the week. Vancouver police are finally talking about it publicly, defending their motives behind the report and the report's content. Rumina Dea, who first broke the story on Monday, has the latest. After two days of no comment by Vancouver police, the chief now defending the figures. You're misleading the public by throwing out this inflated huge $5 billion number. Right. So, in fact, we're not misleading the public. We're actually telling the public the truth. $5 billion a year, the cost of Vancouver's social safety net, according to Help Seeker Technologies. The VPD paying the Canadian research company $149,000 to conduct an audit. A major focus, the flow of money to the downtown east side with no accountability. There is a significant amount of accountability. The books for organizations that receive money are audited, for example. It's unfortunate that the authors of the, uh, the report uh, didn't bother to, uh, to contact the, the province uh, to get uh, more accurate information. The numbers and methodology, controversial, given the $5 billion includes $2 billion in federal transfers for costs including CPP, old age security and child benefits for all Vancouverites, not just the vulnerable. Direct benefits are a hallmark of uh, social welfare states, so it would be erroneous for us to exclude that. Is the motivation to get more money in the police budget? What's the motivation here? Well, if you look at the report, there's nothing in here about the police budget. Like, there's nothing in here about, you know, Adam Palmer asking for more resources for VPD. No matter how you crunch the numbers, the chief is arguing no one is in charge of the downtown east side. Too many ministries, too many city departments, a lack of coordination while the crisis is getting worse. Six months ago, there was not even half as many people down here. Every 10 steps you take, people are offering you drugs. 50-year-old Blake Letcher, a victim of the broken system. No home, no help for depression, no treatment bed. The last time we spoke. I'll probably die. I'll probably die. Um, fentanyl is eating the inside, inside, is, is eating inside of me out. They'll get police chiefs and deputy chiefs coming up even recently, as recently as last week, from big cities in the U.S., and they go to the downtown east side and they're gobsmacked. They can't believe what they're seeing. What is clear? More people will suffer. More people will die before tangible solutions hit these streets. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, it has taken 361 days, almost a full year, but welcome relief today for a part of the province hit particularly hard by last year's atmospheric rivers. Julie Nolan now on the reopening of a key BC highway that's had to deal with a series of natural disasters. Three, two, one, here we go. <laughs> Just like that, this stretch of Highway 8 finally back in service. People will be able to drive from here in Merritt to Spence's Bridge all along Highway 8 for the first time in nearly one year. 69 kilometres of what's also called the Nicola Highway 
previously wiped out by BC's catastrophic floods, now operational thanks to temporary repairs. It's welcome news for people who live and work along this important highway corridor, and it has been um, with no shortage of effort. Uh, to get us to that point. Seven kilometers completely washed out by an occurrence so rare, it's been called a one in a 750 year weather event. Drone footage from the ministry shows the sheer magnitude of the project over a 12 month span, 25 sections needing repair, then hampered by five more mudslides last summer. So completing this work in under a year tells you everything you need to know about the people and their level of dedication who've been working on this project. A tour of the area shows sections ready for permanent road work. Temporary repairs have already cost up to $250 million, while permanent work is anticipated to reach the $1 billion mark. 70% of that will be covered by the federal government. Meanwhile, First Nations and many others in the region are still reeling from the damage. And then it started hitting our ridge, and I thought, well, looks like we're going to be stuck here. And we were shut out of some decisions regarding the work. One chief says it'll take more than one ministry to bring the region back from the brink. A few weeks seemed like an eternity for many of my members. And for many, they're still displaced. Full construction is planned for the winter season. Area residents will have access, although non-local drivers are advised to use other routes where possible. Julie Nolan, Global News. Homicide investigators are collecting evidence at a home in Chilliwack. RCMP were called to a residence on South Sumas Road near Unsworth Road just before 2 on Tuesday afternoon. The integrated homicide investigation team has now taken over the case. IHID says the victims are a man and woman and their deaths are suspicious. They're now working to confirm the identities of the victims. Anyone with information is asked to call IHID. The Crown has rested its case in the Doug McCallum public mischief trial, and now it is up to the judge to decide whether the former mayor of Surrey is guilty or not guilty. As Catherine Urquhart reports, on the last day of the trial, the special prosecutor highlighted inconsistencies in the statement McCallum gave to police. Doug McCallum arrives at Surrey Provincial Court for the final day of his public mischief trial. The former Surrey mayor is accused of misleading police about an investigation into his foot allegedly being run over. She pulled out and turned right. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time. The tire went right across here. In final submissions, defense lawyer Eric Gattardi asserted McCallum's actions were consistent with someone having a minor injury, saying he should be acquitted. Special Prosecutor Richard Fowler told the court the trial isn't about whether Doug McCallum's foot was run over. Rather, it's about whether he gave false statements to police. She pulled in like this and pinned me right here. Yeah. And then, um, and touching me. And, um, and then just screaming blue murder. Fowler pointed out that McCallum had claimed to police 11 times that he had been pinned by Debbie Johnstone's car, saying that simply did not happen. Fowler also noted McCallum's two hour delay in calling 911, saying he had time to make sure what he told police was going to be accurate. 
CCTV footage from the Save on Foods parking lot was evidence, along with photos of McCallum's foot and the shoes he wore at the time. The truth will win. That's all we got to do is tell the truth. Debbie Johnstone, the woman who allegedly drove over his foot, testified, as did the lead investigator and several expert witnesses. Now, do you see uh, the red mark there? Doug McCallum's public mischief trial is now over. Judge Reg Harris is expected to rule on the case in about two weeks. Stairs or elevator? What do you prefer? Elevator. Elevator. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Abandoned boats in Vancouver's False Creek have frustrated many residents for years, and now it appears something is finally being done about them. The derelict dozen authorities are targeting, and the deadline they face next on the News Hour. Going, going, almost gone. A year later, the barge won't be chilling much longer. A progress report on its removal coming up. Plus, a close call on the Delta Port overpass. What happened when police caught up with the driver? That's still to come tonight. First, though, if you heard a cheer coming from the vicinity of Vancouver, it might have been from the people who live around False Creek. As Krista Dow reports, Transport Canada has announced it's finally doing something about the floating eyesores in the neighbourhood. In the heart of Vancouver, False Creek is a destination for hundreds of boats and vessels. But it seems many have outstayed their welcome. There's a lot of uh, boats that are there. Some are left unattended. Some actually have people living on them. Jeremy Patterson with False Creek Ferries knows this area like the back of his hand. He's seen a rise in the number of derelicts or apparently abandoned vessels, some unseaworthy, others downright suspicious. They have too many bikes on their boat is, is one of the things that you wonder where they got all the bikes from. There just seem to be a lot of boats that are in bad shape. And now they're put on notice. With help from the city and the Vancouver Police Marine Unit, Transport Canada has identified 12 abandoned sail and power vessels anchored in False Creek and English Bay that will be disposed of. Owners have 30 days to respond. They could be just dumping a lot of waste and uh, sewage and things like that into the into the creek. 12 is quite a few. I think it should have been stopped maybe long before it got to that point. It's too bad. It's another uh, blemish on what's otherwise a very beautiful city. Not only an eyesore, but the decrepit or abandoned boats pose a health and safety risk, like this one that sank after getting caught up in last week's windstorm. A lot of these vessels aren't really seaworthy or barely seaworthy. They're leaking, you know, oil and worse in, in, into the False Creek. When they do um, go ashore, go aground or get damaged and sink, all the debris floats around False Creek until it gets cleaned up by somebody. Patterson believes the actual number of derelict boats is much higher. He'd also like to see more enforcement. But for now, a good step forward in cleaning up the creek. Krista Dow, Global News. Up next on the news hour, uplifting Chinatown. If we start to lose Vancouver's Chinatown, we're really losing the heart and soul of our city. Vancouver's new council takes the first steps to help the community make a comeback. Also ahead, remembering a dark chapter in Canada's history and the role a group of Port Moody residents played in trying to make things right.
Good evening. Plenty of emergency crews on scene to a rollover crash here in Langley, southbound on 200th Street at 48th Avenue. The right lane is blocked. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmarts throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexins.com. Open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Langley. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Two people have been sent to hospital in a house fire on the South Surrey White Rock border. 16 firefighters responded to a call mid-morning at a duplex on the northeast corner of 160th Street and 16th Avenue. Crews managed to get the fire under control, but the structure suffered extensive damage. Two people were taken to hospital and two others were treated on the scene. Investigators are trying to determine a cause. The duplex was in bad shape with a tarp covering the roof. There is no update on the condition of those who were taken to hospital. A delegation of Vancouver police and community leaders recently visited San Francisco's Chinatown to see what that city has done to tackle crime and social challenges in the neighborhood. Now, one councillor is borrowing on that experience as she calls on city staff to support urgent, me urgent measures to uplift Chinatown. Kristen Robinson reports. Albert Fox's family has been filling herbal prescriptions in Chinatown for 45 years. As the weight of the community's challenges takes its toll, he hopes the new civic government will measure up. Obviously, Chinatown slash downtown Eastside is uh, uh, the major sufferer of all these issues. Graffiti vandalism, street disorder, and random attacks. Restoring public safety, he says, should be the city's top priority. It was getting worse. It wasn't improving at all. And because of the pandemic, it just fast-tracked and almost exponentially deteriorated. If we start to lose Vancouver's Chinatown, we're really losing the heart and soul of our city. Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young is bringing a motion to council November 15th, asking staff to report back in January on enhanced street alley and sidewalk cleaning in Chinatown, nuisance graffiti removal, beautification like murals in public art, and community-led efforts. A delegation of VPD and Chinatown leaders learned how those actions helped San Francisco overcome similar challenges during a police board-funded trip this past summer. The fact that this was a real effort and a concerted effort where all of the parties came together and said, OK, we need to move the needle literally here um, and take back our Chinatown. Kirby Young also wants staff to explore potential bylaw changes to remove or waive fines for property owners and businesses repeatedly targeted by taggers. It's a matter of... You know, how fast can we clean the graffiti only to be defaced again, you know, overnight and then you clean it again and then to be defaced overnight again. So, so it's an ongoing perpetual kind of mouse game. ABC Vancouver promised to set up a city office in Chinatown and the motion calls on staff to establish one within a city-owned property like Chinatown Plaza. You're going to see your mayor and council down here on a more regular basis. I think this requires more than just the civic government it's itself. There's no quick remedy, Fox says, for Chinatown's most complex challenge. Ensuring its neighbors struggling with homelessness and addiction get the help they deserve will require calculated cooperation from all three levels of government. Kristen Robinson, Global News. 
permanent tribute is being paid to those who tried to make a difference in a dark chapter in Metro Vancouver history. A storyboard has been unveiled in Port Moody's Rocky Point Park, highlighting efforts to help those stranded on board the Komagata Maru back in 1914. A shipload of immigrants were denied entry into Canada and forced to return to India, where several eventually died at the hands of police. But while their fate was being decided in Vancouver, members of the local Sikh community did their best to reduce the suffering of those on board the ship. Local South Asian and First Nation community provided the passengers with food, water and medication. Often the passengers went for 24 hours without food and water, sometimes two or three days or more. The storyboard acknowledges the role of systemic racism in Canada in this tragedy, as well as the contribution of the Sikh community as some of Port Moody's earliest residents and their contributions to the passengers isolated on the steamship. In 1914, there were approximately 2,000 South Asian families living in B.C., many of them working at the Port Moody Lumber Mill. Coming up, the wins and losses of the U.S. midterms. I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. How the red wave didn't turn out quite as some had expected. Also ahead, emotional testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Take a moment to reflect. BC Remembers, live on Global BC and BC One, Friday, November 11th from 10.30 a.m. Brought to you by the Royal Canadian Legion. We remember to honour Canada's veterans. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight. Just a little slow southbound towards that Nordell off-ramp. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A lower mainland truck driver faces $500 in fines after a near miss on the Delta Port overpass. A truck is driving up the ramp to the two-lane overpass, and as it reaches the crest, an oncoming truck is in the lane trying to pass. The trucks narrowly miss a head-on collision. The incident happened on October 18th, and Delta Police say they worked with other agencies to identify the driver. Police have issued two tickets, one for driving without due care, and the other for crossing the double solid line. Well, control of Congress in the United States is still to be determined after a record-breaking voter turnout in Tuesday's midterm elections. And while Republicans still have a legitimate chance to derail President Joe Biden's agenda, Democrats staved off full elimination, a move that could impact Donald Trump's political future. Global's Reggie Cicchini has more. Defying the odds, Democrats avoided a clock cleaning in an election they said put democracy and rights on the line. We bet on the people of Pennsylvania, and you didn't let us down. The party flipped Pennsylvania's Senate seat. It captured Massachusetts' gubernatorial race. I'll be a governor for everyone. And brought in the youngest member of Congress from Generation Z. As a 25-year-old, I say, I'm not too young, I'm just on time. But those gains came with a cost. The president's low favorability and a sinking economy gave Republicans an edge. We will be in the majority and Nancy Pelosi will be in the minority. Well, the predicted red wave has yet to reach the shore, the House of Representatives still leans Republican and with reason. He's good on nominations, but is he good on the general election? GOP setbacks came via several losses by Trump-backed candidates. 
Results that could jeopardize his 2024 presidential bid, where he would likely face off. I have only begun to fight. With Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, fresh off a massive victory and last-minute Trump endorsement. I think that he is going to be positioning himself to be the next, the, sort of the next leader of this wave. I think that Trump's instinct whenever he's threatened is to, is to attack. And so I would expect that just only to increase. The landscape in the U.S. also shifted in this election. Republicans making inroads with women and Latino populations concerned about the economy. But abortion was the second most important issue, becoming a motivating factor for Democrats. I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. Ongoing ballot counting and a Georgia runoff mean that control of Congress may not be determined for weeks in a historic midterm election that bucked trends and has left parties and the country unsure of what's next. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Testimony continued in Ottawa today as the mayor of Coots addressed the Emergencies Act inquiry. The southern Alberta village made international headlines in February when so-called Freedom Convoy supporters blocked the land border crossing to the U.S. Some emotional moments on the stand in the nation's capital Wednesday as Village of Coots Mayor Jim Willett discussed the impact of the Alberta border blockade on residents during the so-called Freedom Convoy protests earlier this year. Older people had one lady who would, if somebody drove her out to, for a doctor's appointment or something, she would uh, curl up in a ball. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Some people that really bothered he described protesters as domestic terrorists during the ongoing public inquiry that is examining the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act to deal with blockades and protests that emerged across the country. Among the evidence presented Wednesday were text messages between Willett and then-Alberta Transportation Minister Rajan Sani about what the province was doing to address the Coots blockade. Willett was initially critical of what he called lack of support and the government's hesitation to bring in the Alberta Infrastructure Act, but his stance softened a bit on Wednesday. Probably my opinion is not as harsh as it was at the time. Uh, I believe the province was doing more than was visible to me and most people. The Coots mayor also testified RCMP appeared to be caught off guard by the blockade and felt it was the discovery of a cache of weapons and body armor, not the invoking of the Emergencies Act, that saw trucks and tractors disperse from the southern Alberta border crossing in mid-February. And so you're not aware of any enforcement powers available under the Emergencies Act being used to clear the, the blockade then? No, that had nothing to do with it. The public inquiry is expected to wrap up on November 25th. Eloise Terrien, Global News. Federal Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev is in Vancouver today. The party boss speaking to reporters at a local supermarket addressing affordability concerns. This is Poiliev's second news conference since becoming leader in September. The Conservatives saying everything feels broken in Canada. 
placing the blame on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. Poiliev was also questioned about his stance on the Freedom Convoy, both when it happened and now, as more information is being learned through the Emergencies Act inquiry. So my position is the same as it was before the convoy arrived, the same as it was during, and the same as it is now, which is this. I support those peaceful and law-abiding protesters who demonstrated for their lives and livelihoods and liberties, while condemning any individual who broke laws, behaved badly, or um, blockaded critical infrastructure. I think it's possible to support the overall cause of personal free choice in vaccination and the overall cause of respecting the trucker's ability to, to earn an income while holding individually responsible anyone who behaved badly, broke laws or blockaded key infrastructure. It was another day of chaos at Kelowna International Airport with flight delays and cancellations causing more headaches for passengers. There's been a number of weather events. We had uh, increased uh, snow, which caused visibility issues. We've had low clouds and strong winds from the north, basically over the last five days. And when you get into that sort of weather pattern, it makes it a little more difficult for aircraft to land. The airport says WestJet's system-wide outage over the weekend didn't help matters, as the airline is still struggling to clear its backlog of passengers. However, officials are optimistic the weather will start improving shortly. Today we're starting to see a number of flights being able to land again and we're anticipating clearer skies as we go into tomorrow. So we're hopeful that uh, most of the delays will be cleaned up by then. Officials are reminding passengers to check their flight status before heading to the airport. A young man has returned to say thank you to the clinic that helped him find answers as to why he faces so many health challenges. Ibrahim is the first person in the world identified with his specific condition. As a boy, he had a lot of trouble moving his knees, ankles, elbows and hips. He would also get sick with a lot of fevers and colds and he developed a rare cancer. No one could figure out what was going wrong. At the age of 15, Ibrahim and his family arrived in Canada and into the care of BC Children's Hospital. Like there's other people, they can move, they can stand up, I can do everything, so that's good. What about before the job? Same thing, like the, the difference was I was just walking my toes and now I can walk flat. This is the first person in the world identified with this specific problem, the lack of the NFAT1 protein. So that's really defining a brand new human disease. Doctors traced Ibrahim's health issues to a mutation on a single gene. They say it may help diagnose children facing similar challenges in the future. Well, it's been about 360 days and it's almost all gone. Piece by piece, it is slowly shrinking. The status of the Sunset Beach Barge next. Plus the heartbreaking story of Poppy the Puppy and how she's doing now. Well, the backdrop for countless Vancouver selfies has almost sailed into the city's history books. Take a look. This is all that is left of Vancouver's notorious barge. It was on November 15th of last year that it was blown ashore between Sunset Beach and English Bay in that powerful storm. 
Deconstruction began in July and is now in its final weeks. The company given the task, Vancouver Pile Driving, has been hauling the barge away piece by piece to a staging area where it's being processed and recycled. Hopefully we won't have another atmospheric river or anything like that, uh, Yvonne, that will um, undo all the work that they've done since yeah. July. Absolutely. It's been a while and it's nice to see that the view is finally appearing for that area. Thanks, Soph, and good evening, everyone. It was a very chilly start to the morning. We'll see that reappear once again. So a heads up, that cold Arctic air is entrenched right across the province. We've got strong outflow winds, especially along the north and central coast. A snapshot of some of the numbers. Williams Lake sitting at minus 14. Good evening into Cologne at minus 6 and Merritt with the current temperature at minus 15. With the wind, it'll be chilly right across the now, overnight tonight, we'll dip down to minus one. We do have a bit of cloud cover that will roll in with the wind chill. will feel like minus six. Keep that in mind if you're heading out for work and school in the morning. You'll want to bundle up. And then as we get in through the day, we'll hang on to a mainly cloudy sky. It'll be dry, but there are a few breaks in there. And temperatures will bump up to four degrees. The average for this time of the year typically sits closer to eight degrees. We'll still be slightly below that. A nice break, especially across the central and southern half of the province. It's the north and central coast. This next weather maker is going to move in. Now, the timeline as it starts to intensify along the northern half of the province will bring rain with very windy conditions. It's inland. That's the area of concern, especially tomorrow night and leading in towards Friday that we're actually going to see accumulating snowfall in a significant amount with the snowfall warning inland. Kitimat included within that could see 10 and up to 20 centimeters. So a heads up, most areas along the coast will still see those strong outflow winds in areas closer to the water, 30 and up to 50 kilometers per hour. A few spots in the inlets could see some of those winds between 70 and up to 90 kilometers per hour. So the active weather will be along the northern half of the province. It'll intensify some of the heaviest snowfall once again Thursday leading in towards Friday, 10 and up to 20 centimeters. The southern half of the province with some breaks in there, some sunshine in the mix, a nice break and clearing towards the afternoon, but the temperature Temperatures in the morning will be sitting into the minus double digits across the island. The northern tip of Vancouver Island could track some rain pushing in as early as the afternoon. Lower mainland, we are going to see a mainly cloudy sky remains dry. Now we're looking ahead, especially for our Remembrance Day. We've got a bit of a blip in the forecast. We could see the potential for some showers. Temperatures will climb up to eight degrees and then rebounding so far and towards our Saturday. We're back into some sunshine. All right, tonight's weather window. This is a great shot capturing the sunrise in Grand Forks. So thank you so much, Leanna. Soph? Looks cold, but lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Yvonne. Well, the BC SPCA is looking for a forever family for a puppy left abandoned outside their facility in Port Alberni. Poppy is a three-month-old Labrador Retriever cross. A staff member found her cold and scared in a planter outside the shelter when they arrived for work recently. A review of security footage showed a vehicle pulling up in the middle of the night and leaving the animal at the gate. When the puppy tried to run after the car as it pulled away, the occupant grabbed her and put her in the planter box. Puppy is suffering from mange, skin and ear infections and parasites. She's now being looked after by a foster family. The SPCA wants everyone to know if they can't look after their animals, they can be surrendered during regular hours and there is no need to leave an unwanted animal out in the cold. Poppy the puppy will be okay though. All right, Squire is here now with a look ahead to sports. I feel like we kind of match a little bit today. Uh, well, well, I can't see you that well, kind so of. I need glasses. Not really, but do you have purple? It sort of. Okay. Maroony. I, 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 I can't see you. You're okay, across the I, I side know, of the studio. I, I will move closer to you. 
in a as moment. the show progresses, and you'll be able to see for sure. I can't wait. Well, when, we, when I do come back, and I'm standing closer to you, I'll show you what's happening with the Canucks in Montreal. Of course, they won last night in Ottawa. It's not going so well with the Canadians. Also, we'll hear from Nathan Work. How's his foot with the game against uh, Winnipeg coming up on Sunday? Also coming up tonight. I love my family. I love it so much. I love everything about it. On World Adoption Day, the social media posts that helped bring this family together. Now that you're next to me okay. on the other side. So of now the you can I see, can see. It's yeah. not really that close. I mean, it's sort of close, but not really. One day I'll But our poppies are the same color. Is. That's that's one. There we go. So we are matching. We are matching in one way. Anyway, uh, last night the Vancouver Canucks won 6-4 in Ottawa, but it was a win I don't think that would really dissuade Jim Rutherford of his thoughts that Vancouver's defensive structure is flimsy at best. The Canucks allow an average of four goals per game. Only once this season have they allowed less than three. And oddly enough, that was against Sidney Crosby and the Penguins. Tonight, it's Thatcher Demko in goal for Vancouver. Again with the smelling salts. Uh, last night, Spencer Martin played great. Tonight, Demko. And just like last night, very early, they get scored on. This is on the power play, and it's Nick Suzuki. And Vancouver statistically has the worst power play in the NHL right now. So that made it one nothing for Montreal. Then Arbor Jackai, spelled X-H-E-K-A-J. That would get you tons of points in Scrabble. That'll make it 2-0. It deflects in off um, Tanner Pearson, who actually left the game with an injury. We don't know what's happened to him. So 2-0 there. Then, terrible giveaway by J.T. Miller. Right to Kirby Dock. You can't blame Demko here. What is J.T. thinking? So now it's 3-0. Okay, Thatcher Demko is going to make a really nice save here. And then Thatcher Demko is going to get in on roughing up Brendan Gallagher. Oh, with Ekman Larson. I'll take care of my own business, thanks. He didn't like the stick Gallagher was poking into him. Oops, Jack Rathbone misses that. Now it's Mike Hoffman down the right side. It's 4 nothing. Second period. One more look. Nothing is bouncing right for the Canucks there. Demko getting lit up again. So the Habs score to make it 4-0 just before the end of the second. Vasily Pod Colson takes it to the net. However, Sam Montembeau and Montreal hold him out. And the Canadians still lead in the third period by the score of 4-0. Canucks will be in Toronto on Saturday. Edmonton Oilers forward and Vancouver born and raised. Evander Kane is going to be out of action for three to four months after cutting his wrist on a skate in a game against Tampa Bay last night. He had surgery on the wrist today. And he also said today through social media, he's grateful to the training staffs of both the Oilers and the Lightning who worked together on him and the paramedics that arrived on the scene in Tampa Bay. We'll show you what happened, so be forewarned. Although Kane got off the ice very quickly, so it's not as gruesome looking as it could have been. The injury didn't happen when Kane falls here. 
but when number 14 Pat Maroon accidentally skates over his wrist, that's when the cut occurs. Obviously, player skates are kept razor sharp. Kane immediately got himself up and off the ice so trainers could stop the bleeding. You can see on this other angle, there you go, see Kane. Look at Maroon pointing that something bad has happened and Kane gets off the ice quickly. Well, during that Western semifinal win over Calgary on Sunday, Nathan Rourke had to put his sore foot up a few times and it made everybody wonder, how will it recover from that game? And will it recover so he can at least be close to 100% for the Western final this Sunday in Winnipeg against the Blue Bombers. The Lions will not have a full practice until tomorrow. Today they were on the field, but this was more of a walkthrough. Just stretch your legs, get familiar with the game plan. And Nathan was there and he was asked the obvious question. How are you feeling? Yeah, I feel better for sure. I was definitely sore a little bit after. It's the most I've asked it to do in a 10 months, so, or sorry, 10 weeks. And so uh, it's expected to be a little bit sore. Uh, but it's uh, the couple days off that we've had and you know Coach Campbell's taking care of us today and so expect to be full go for tomorrow and, and, and all the days after that. And to continue with young Canadians and their health, Alfonso Davies says he is confident he will be 100% healthy when the World Cup begins for Canada. He is uh, taking a couple of games off from his club team Byron Munich because of a hamstring injury but doctors have assured him he will be back to normal in time to lead Canada because without him, without Alfonso Davies, any chance of Canada pulling an upset against teams ranked higher than them in their group, which is everybody in their group, well, we probably wouldn't have any chance because Alfonso is Canada's best player. We need him. We need him healthy. We need him out there. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Well, it started with a Facebook post and turned into a new family. That story next. Jordan Armstrong here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, someone is making inappropriate comments and hand gestures at women walking in Deer Lake Park. This is a sketch of the suspect in one incident which happened October 13th, but there have also been other similar interactions since September in the Burnaby Park. We'll tell you more tonight. Plus, why a major BC city is seeing a cut to ambulance service by 30%. These stories and more on Global News at 11. Sophie? All right, we'll look for you then. Thanks, Jordan. Well, family is what you make it, and that saying rings especially true for those marking World Adoption Day today. Claudia Van Emmerich now with the story of a Kelowna woman and how she came to adopt her seven-year-old daughter from Ukraine several years ago. Irina Meyer loves spending time with her seven-year-old daughter, Angelina. They enjoy things like sledding and going to the library. What's a baby? Do you see baby? And looking at photo albums of Angelina's family in Ukraine. This is my mom and dad. Her biological parents, who both passed away. Her mom, a childbirth. Her dad, six months later, from a medical problem complication. She has some questions for sure, and we talk, we're very honest with everything. She knows everything. She knows all about her adoption and while the loss of her parents it makes me sad. The joy of a new family doesn't escape her. I love my family. I love it so much that I can't really just, I love everything about it. Angelina first came to Irina's attention through a Facebook post. She was so touched by the little girl's difficult circumstances, she decided to start helping her and the grandmother who was taking care of her all the way from Canada. 
We just make a little help with a little renovation over there. We buy them, a, I think, washer and dryer and some little computer for her. The Kelowna woman, who's of Ukrainian descent herself, eventually ended up in her homeland, and the two finally met. I came over there, and we go, I think, first time we go for the to the park with you, yes, and have a pony ride. When Irina's extended stay in Ukraine was coming to an end, Angelina's grandma asked if she would consider adopting the little girl. She asked me and my ex-husband, and we decided, yes, for sure we can do it, because I think everybody will be happy to have this cutie one. And while they have already made many memories together, one in particular stands out, the first time Angelina called her mom. This was for sure very emotional. I don't, it was tears for sure. And on this World Adoption Day, Irina, who has two other biological children, says while adoption is not for everyone, it's enhanced her life. It's just more love, more good emotion. And same for Angelina, who doesn't hesitate to reveal what she loves most about her mom. That she cares about me and she loves me. Hmm. <laughs> Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. Uh, I know. <laughs> right? It's so right sweet. here. So sweet. I, we know you're feeling it too, Squire, but... I am. I, I, <laughs> I feel it on the inside. Yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it. Yeah. All right, final word on the weather, Yvonne, and kind of more of the cold but beautiful weather coming. Yeah, Parka weather, it's going to be chilly once again. Overnight tonight, temperatures will dip down to minus one. We'll have a bit more cloud cover in the mix through the day tomorrow, but with the wind chill for the early morning hours when you head out for work and school, it's going to feel like minus six, mainly cloudy through the day. It's dry. We're keeping a close eye for Remembrance Day so far. It looks like we're hanging on to cloud cover with a chance of showers and then clearing out late in the day or late afternoon and leading in towards the evening. If you're making plans for the weekend, the nicer date or the bunch so far looks to be on Saturday with that sunshine. Showers moving in for Saturday night and then take us, taking us in towards our Sunday so far. So chilly in the coming days, um, especially for the early morning hours. It'll be feeling closer to minus six. Pretty amazing uh, not to have rain at this time of the year, <laughs> but I'm sure it'll come at some point. Yeah. All right, that's all the time we have for tonight on the News Hour. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night, all.